You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading is Genesis 23, the verses 1 through 20. And again, just like this morning, Genesis 23 becomes a background for the words that Peter uses in his letter to describe the church today. This afternoon, Peter is using the words strangers and aliens, words that Abraham uses to describe himself in Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived to be a 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field, accept it for me, so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered, Abraham, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field at Mac. Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham and his property in the presence, or as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field at Machpelah near Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And the text this afternoon is again from 1 Peter chapter 2, and this time the text is the verses 11 and 12. So we'll start with 11 and 12, but for context, also read up to verse 25, keeping in mind that the text is the first two verses that we read, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the, uh, the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in earlier verses of this letter that Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, the verses we read this morning, Peter describes for us our identity in the world. And we heard him say in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are God's holy people. We heard him say that we are a kingdom of priests and that we have been brought together by God and that we have been built up as God's people. And so these the the verses 9 and 10, the the Apostle Peter focuses in on on who we are specifically. And so it's more inward-looking. But in the next two verses in the Texas afternoon, verses 11 and 12, he looks out again. And so he shifts his, his focus or his view from our identity to uh, our identity or to our relationship with the world around us. So the question is, how do we, who have been formed into God's people, how do we relate to the world around us? Well, there have been many approaches to this question because on the one hand you can see or hear Peter argue or or explain to us how different we are. And so some people answer the question about how we relate to the world by saying we don't relate to the world. We keep away from the world. We reject the culture around us altogether. We reject the world around us altogether. People who who come with this approach have never played with neighborhood kids as children. They always work for someone who goes to the same church as them. They never interact, nor do they ever want to interact with secular society around them. 
Well, that's one extreme to the approach to the question of how we, we relate to our culture. The other extreme is that we embrace culture. We say this whole world belongs to Christ as King and therefore everything in it belongs to Him and therefore we as God's people need to conquer culture for Christ, they say. That's their slogan. Many have called these kinds of people triumphalists because they believe that we need to triumph over the culture around us. And that means taking over the arts for Christ. It means taking over education for Christ. It means taking over the legislature for Christ. These people believe we need to exert social and political pressure and influence in order to transform society around us. How does Peter weigh into this debate, this discussion? How do we relate to the world around us? Well, we don't hear Peter talk about either of those extremes. He doesn't tell us to ignore culture. Neither does he tell us to conquer culture. What does Peter say about how we are to relate to the world around us? How do we live in secular society? And we'll see from this text in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Peter tells us to live as Christians among the pagans. And how do we do that? We'll see him first tell us to abstain from sinful desires, and secondly, he tells us to witness the good life to the world around us. So in the first place, he tells us that we live as Christians among pagans by abstaining from sinful desires. Well, Peter's solution we've seen to the question about how to live in the world isn't about avoidance. It's not about uh, triumph either. It's not about conquering. His solution, it says in the text, is about living as aliens and strangers here. Aliens and strangers. What does that mean? Where does Peter get these terms from? And what does he mean by them? Well, again, just like this morning, he goes and he reaches back into the Old Testament in order to explain for us, describe for us how we relate to the world. He goes to Genesis chapter 23. And in Genesis 23, we heard Peter, or we heard Abraham talk to the Hittites in Canaan, and he told them, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for my, for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. And that's where Peter's coming from. Well, Peter's using words that Abram used. What did they mean when Abraham used them? Well, Abram spoke these words when he traveled from the land of Ur, the land in, uh, of Babylon. And he traveled all the way to Canaan. And when he did, he was a nomad. You can hear it in the language, in the conversation that he has with the Hittites. They say, you are among my people. They make those distinctions that Abraham is there as a stranger and that he doesn't actually belong to the people of Hittites. That's how they talk. And Abraham, it's true, had no deed. He had no title in the land of Canaan. He owned no property. He wasn't one of them. He came to the the political um, council as a guest. 
And when he wanted to do something as simple as bury his wife, something as important as burying his wife, he couldn't do so because he had, he didn't even have enough property there to lay his wife in the ground. And so that's what he meant. I'm a stranger here. I don't own property. I don't live here. I'm a temporary resident here. And the Hittites living in the land of Canaan agree with him that he's a stranger. Many people have commented on this uh, in these verses in Genesis by saying the reason they don't want to sell him the land at first is because they don't want him to own property in the land of Canaan. Here he is, a mighty prince. They don't want him to to become established in their land. So they they first try to uh, very politically avoid allowing him to own land in their in their region. And so Peter's looking back into this, this time in Israel's history to describe what it's like to live as a Christian today in this land today. He says, we're like Abraham, the one whom God loved, living in a land that is not our own, yet we are neither avoiding culture nor trying to conquer it. How do we imitate Abraham today? How do we relate to our culture as aliens and strangers? Well, Peter says the first thing we need to do in this context is avoid or abstain from sinful desires. Now, when most people talk about sinful desires, they think about sexual desires. Well, that's not Peter's purpose here. If you read through his whole letter, he talks about desires as the things that pagans choose to do. So he's talking not only about sexual sins, that's included, but he's also talking about things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And he mentions some other examples in chapter 4. He mentions debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, detestable idolatry. And so abstaining from sinful desires is abstaining from the pagan culture. So in some ways it's true. Peter is saying, keep your distance. Don't live like the people around you. Don't choose to do the things that they do. Don't live like them. So just like Abraham in Canaan, he says, uh, just like Abram in, in, in the land of Canaan would not become a Hittite, he refused to become a Hittite He never identified himself with the Hittites. He remained distinct. So we also have to live in this land as a distinct people. We don't become like the world. And yet the way Peter describes this for us, he doesn't make it sound very easy, does he? How does he say it? He says, abstain from the evil desires that war against your soul. They war against your soul. And so he says, you will come into contact with the world. You will come into contact with those desires you had when you belonged to the world. Those desires that belong to your nature, your former nature. He says it's a battle. You will become battle-weary. And you'll have the scars to prove it. 
There's a war in your soul where these fleshly desires, these worldly pagan desires want to conquer you and claim you. How are you fighting these desires? Can your neighbors see it in your life? Can your classmates say, or do your classmates or do your neighbors say, why do you say you're a Christian? You don't act like one. In fact, you act just like everyone else. What's the point of calling yourself a Christian? You're just like us. How much evidence is there in your life that you are a stranger here? But then notice that Peter doesn't say that you're at war with the world. That's not what he's talking about. That's sometimes how we talk about it, isn't it? We're at war with the world. But Peter says, the war is in your own soul. And so it's not as easy as just blaming everything on the people around you. These are things that live in you. You have to take accountability for it. Peter's saying you need to be transformed. You need to fight against the sin in your own heart, in your own soul. And so you go into the world and you fight those desires that live in you, that make you want to forget about who you are as a child of God. And this war on your soul takes on different forms. And it, it, it will come to you in different theaters of war. The sins that entice you are not always obvious. It's not going to be easy. We have to discern between righteous desires and the desires that want to destroy us. How does this battle take place? James says in his letter, similar themes. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive. Because you ask with the wrong motives. That you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. So James describes the battle. The desires that live in us. That battle for us when we focus on our own desires and forget about God. And so drunkenness, for example, will battle for your soul when you want to feel confident or good about yourself. And you're convinced that alcohol can do it for you and you keep drinking until you forget that you're a child of God and that your confidence comes from being a child of God. And so you keep doing it. And habit turns into desire. Or desire turns into habit. And the habit turns into necessity. You believe you need it. Until the alcohol becomes like a god to you. And so the, the drunkenness will battle for your soul until you forget that God is your confidence in this world. Idolatry will battle for your soul 
when you want to experience peace and love and joy until you don't care who's offering it or who's giving it. This is the threat of the church today. This is what people in our culture are trying to convince us. Quit being so convinced that joy and peace and love only come from the, from the gospel message. And they'll say, we want what you want. Work with us. It doesn't matter where you get it from, just as long as you get it. And suddenly joy and peace and love become idols to us. That's what we want above all else. And we don't care who gives it. And then we'll forget that when joy and peace and love are separated from the love of Christ, the joy that comes from the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, they're not real. And it's a lie that will consume your soul. You want to be contributors. That's good. You want to contribute to the church. You want to contribute to your family. You want to contribute to society. But then the sinful desires within you battle for your soul. And greed tries to convince you that it's about the money. And it's about the popularity. And it stops being about what you're doing to further God's kingdom. Greed will battle for your soul. So how do we discern? How, how do we discern how we should live in this society today? How do we ensure that the way we engage culture today, we're not losing the battle for our souls? How do we tell the difference between this makes me feel uncomfortable and this is wrong or even harder? More difficult yet. This makes me comfortable and this is right. Sometimes we tend to think that if we're comfortable with it, it must be good. It's not always, not always true. And so when we relate to the world around us, we need to remember something. We need to remember that our life is found in Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that all of our activity on this earth will come from an allegiance, from our allegiance to Jesus Christ as King. And people need to see it. Your neighbors and your classmates, your co-workers, they need to see that you have an undying allegiance to Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you go out into the world, when you contact the world, you don't stop being God's people. You don't disband from here on Sunday and be, just become like everyone else in the world. You don't enter their darkness. You remain in the light of the gospel. And that's how you interact with the people around you. That's a difficult calling. It's difficult because people will try to resist you. People will try to hinder your walk with Christ. They'll challenge your allegiance to Christ. And you will have this war in your soul and this battle for your soul. 
How will we fight the battle? How will the battle continue? Unless we remember that the battle rages in our soul because of the calling we received. It can be discouraging, can't it, that you're constantly fighting something. You're constantly battling some sin in your life. It never ends. Discouraging. Yet the comfort and the assurance comes from the fact that you have this battle in your soul because you were called by God. If God does not, did not call you, and if God was not at work in your soul today, there would be no battle. It would have been easy for sin. You would have lost years ago. Sin would have just overcome you. There would have been nothing to resist it. And you would have died. But you didn't. You're still fighting because God is protecting your soul. His Spirit is fighting for you. Is fighting for your life. And that's why there's a battle in your soul. And so on the one hand, we might be discouraged by the battle, but on the other hand, comforted, experiencing the power of God's Spirit at work in our hearts. And so it's not an easy victory for sin in your life. You can say no to sinful desires because God, God has redeemed you. He's redeemed you from a former way of life and He's promised you that He will fight your battles and that He's going to win your battles. Well, some people, some Christians today, take this terminology and they, they hear this terminology about strangers and aliens and abstaining and they get worried. They worry that Christians will use this kind of terminology in order to ignore or isolate themselves from the world. And so they imagine that if we use this terminology, we're going to turn into a bunch of monks who, who live in a monastery and never walk outside and never, never see what's going on in the world today. And worse yet, they say that if we, if we emphasize these term, these terms, strangers and aliens, it'll give Christians an excuse to stop evangelizing. And people might say, well, if we're strangers here, then what's the, what's the point? What's the use of even interacting with the world? What do we have to do with the world? Let's forget about it. Forget about politics. Forget about culture. Forget about outreach. We don't belong here, so who cares what they do in politics? Who cares what the culture is doing around us? It doesn't matter. Well, is that the effect of this terminology in the Bible? Not at all. Look at Abraham in the land of Canaan. He calls himself a stranger and an alien, but did he isolate himself from the Hittites? Not really. He went to buy a grave from the Hittites. And when he did, the leaders in the gate know who he is. They know his name. Not only do they know his name, they respect him. They offer him their hospitality. They like him. They want him to have a burial site because they like him. They recognize him as a mighty prince, yet they're not intimidated by him. 
They want him to have the dignity of burying his wife, even if that means in their own land. And not only was Abraham well known and well acquainted with their customs, he knows how to engage with what's called a dialogue contract. We read the dialogue contract in Genesis 23. This was a common way of writing up a contract in those days. Abraham's familiar with it. He knows how to respond. He knows how to react. He knows what it means when they speak in a certain way. So he's familiar with how to do business in the land of Canaan. And Genesis 23 says he knows how to measure out uh, the, the price according to their weights and measures. He knows all of that stuff, how to interact with the Hittites, even though he's a stranger and an alien. So also when Peter uses this terminology for us today, it doesn't mean that Christians will not engage in pagan culture at all. Peter begins his instruction, it's true, with the necessary distance. He does say, keep your distance. But then if we keep reading, we might have expected him to say, therefore have nothing to do with the people around you. But he doesn't. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. He's still having these Christians living among pagans. And so the, the point of maintaining that distinctiveness in your way of life is not about isolation from the world. What Peter points us to the task we have of evangelism, of showing the world who we are and why. You live wisely where you are so that your neighbors can see God's goodness in the way you live. Peter says, live such good lives that those who slander you will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You are to live the gospel message so that your neighbors will glorify God. He says, part of the good we do will be seen by your neighbors. Peter says in the, in the verses, in the following verses, what that good looks like. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or as the supreme authority or governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. And so Peter is telling the Christians to do what they had done before and, and, and something that the pagans would recognize as a, a public good. And when he says honor the king, it's a, what some people call a, a Jewishism. He's talking about the emperor. Because who sends governors but the emperor? And so he's talking to these, uh, these Christians who live in Roman provinces who have to submit to the emperor who has sent them a governor to rule over them. And so he's talking about their own Roman political context. And he's saying, submit to that governor. And submit to the one who sent the governor. And so Peter is saying that the good we do will be exercised and witnessed to in politics. And then he says, submit yourselves also to your masters with all respect. And so the good we do will be witnessed by and will, and will be seen and exercised at work. And then he says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, 
so that if those who do not believe see your good deeds, they might also glorify God. And so the good we do might be witnessed and might be expressed in the home. In all of these aspects of life, life in our city, life at home, life in the culture around us, life at work, people will see the wise and good way of life that God has given us. And when they do, they will glorify God. So God will be glorified by us in politics, in business, and at home. Well, someone has provided a good example of how this might look or how this might work in practice. He asks this question. When you go to a restaurant, how does the waitress react to you? So imagine you go to a restaurant with a group of people, a group of friends from church, and you and, and your wait your waitress sees you sit down at the table, and all of you have your heads bowed in prayer uh, in order to thank God for the meal that you're about to eat. What does the waitress tell her friends? What does the waitress think? Does she think, "Oh no, not another bunch of Christians"? I hate serving Christians. They're so rude. They hardly ever tip. They're short with me. They don't seem to care about the people around them. All they care about is themselves. Or when she sees you sit down with your friends and bow your heads in prayer, will she say, good, I have a table of Christians. You know, all the other groups that come in here, they need to drink a lot to have fun, but not these, not Christians. They, they seem to have a, a joy that just wells up within them. A fellowship that, that wells up within them. And you know, they're always so friendly and hospitable and, and they always show respect for everyone no matter what the circumstance. And she might say to her friends at work, you know, you can say whatever you want about what Christians believe. But you know what? They're a nice bunch of people, respectful. You know, I respect them for the way they live and the way they treat people. Well, then Peter goes on and he says, you know, that's that might be the reaction that you get from living a Christian life, but not always. It's not always going to be the reaction you get. Sometimes people will see your your good deeds and slander you. We might live wisely in this world as God has, has taught us. Yet the people around us will still accuse you of hating women and their rights when you defend pro-life, when you argue and against abortion, when you march on the street and, and, and witness to the community around you about, about pro-life. Then your neighbors might slander you. They might say that's because you hate women. You don't care about the right that a woman has. And they might say that you, you are against homosexuality because you, because of your fear and ignorance. You don't get it. And you're unwilling to rethink the issue in a new light. You're, you're backwards and judgmental. That's why you're opposed to a homosexual lifestyle. 
And they also say things, I've, I read about this in the paper a couple of weeks ago, that, that Christians are being accused of, of hating truth because um, they send their kids to private schools. And, and why don't you want the public school to teach your kids? Because you want to lie to them about, about the science and about other things that, that the public school is teaching. And so it's all about cover-ups and lies. That's what private education is all about. And that's how they'll slander you. And so you're trying to live your life as God's people in the world and, and the people around you are slandering you for the good things that you do. Peter asks, who will harm you for doing if you're eager to do good? Well, he says it's true. Most people will not, will not, but some people will. And the pagans at this time that Peter wrote the, this letter, they had it, or the Christians that, uh, during this time that Peter wrote this letter had it a lot worse than we did, or than we do. The pagans leveled serious accusations, legal accusations against Christians. They were called atheists. They were called enemies of the state. They were called superstitious and ignorant. When the pagans heard about the Lord's Supper celebration, the Christians were accused of cannibalism because they heard about how the Christian uh, would say, take the blood of Christ and take the body of Christ. And they assumed these people are eating someone. And that's the, the gossip that spread throughout the Roman Empire. Christians were accused of disturbing the good order of the empire. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing around this period, said of the Christians that they were hated because of their vices. They were considered immoral by the way of life that they took. Another first century Roman historian, Gaius Suetonius, called Christians a class of people animated by a novel and dangerous superstition. How would the Christians respond in this context? How would they react? By doing good to these people? That's not the first instinct, is it? Well, they would have wanted to retaliate, fight back, get back at them. Yet Peter says, live God, live like God's people among them. And your goal when you live as God's people among these people who slander you is that they will glorify God on the day he visits. And so again, Peter comes back, as he always does, to the glory of God in whatever happens in our life as church and in the way we go out into the society around us. It's all about God's glory every time. And he says that God's, that these people will glorify God on the day he visits us. What does that mean? Well, Peter uses this kind of expression that glorifying God for people who belong to God, for Christians. In chapter one, he does the same. He says that when, because you've been redeemed in the blood of Christ, when, when Christ returns, you will glorify God because you are one of God's people. But then he uses another term that is the opposite. Well, the day that God visits is often used in the Old and New Testaments to describe the day of judgment. 
And so Peter is, is having us imagine the day of judgment. That God will come and judge those who have rejected Him. And Peter wants us to live in such a way that those people who slandered us during their life with us on that day will have come to faith and will glorify God. He wants us to care about the people who slander us. He wants us to live such a, a way and such a way among them that they will also glorify God on the day of judgment. Do you care how your neighbors will be on the day of judgment? Do you care that those who do not know Jesus Christ when, when He comes again will die? We have a calling to spread the gospel to those who live in darkness. How does Peter see that being done? Not by imposing regulations. Not by forcing people to to go through the motions that we read about in the Bible. Not at all. But he wants us to be a credible gospel witness in the world around us. So that they'll see for themselves who God is and what He's doing here. And they'll glorify Him from their hearts. They'll love Him. So those who hate you today, make it your goal that one day they will love your Lord just like you do. And we will begin to evangelize like that when we live in the culture around us, when we engage the culture in a meaningful way. And God will give us opportunities at school and at work. People will hear you and see you and they'll wonder, why are you like that? Why did you say that? What is it about you? What makes you tick? And you'll get the opportunity to tell them, this is what makes me tick. I belong to Jesus Christ because he saved me. And so it's true, we have to be different from the world around us. We have to keep a distance. We have to defend the the distinction between light and darkness, but not in a way that isolates ourselves from the world. Not in a way that shrinks back. And that's our challenge. Our challenge to find a way to live in this culture as a credible witness to the gospel. Imagine how hard it was for the, the early Christians to live good lives among the pagans. How easy it would have been for them to hope that their, their pagan neighbors would die because of the way they treated Christians. Yet Peter says, don't think like that. Don't do that. Just keep living the light of the gospel no matter what happens to you. And your greatest desire for your neighbors, your greatest desire for those who slander you and accuse you, is that they will receive the same grace that you have received from God. That they'll see the good life that God has given you and glorify God because of what He's doing in you and what He's doing among us. Amen.
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.